This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special and somewhat uh, regular these days mailbag edition for this Sunday. I'm Scott Phillips and with me as always on a Sunday of all things, Dr. Yvonne Mahati. G'day Doc, how are you? Oh, I'll just say all right. <laughs> oh, come I'll on. I'll just stick with all right. It's Sunday, mate. The market's closed. You'll be okay. Uh, I'm, it's, it's like Thursday. Here, so <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm just about all right. <laughs> we are pre-recording this on a Thursday, as I suggested, on Friday's podcast, because we've got so many great questions from our members, our listeners, and we want to answer some of them. So I figure that's probably worth doing. Should we just get into it, mate? Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. The first question comes from Siegfried, who says, I have a question. Can you help? He's come to the right place. He says, question for Scott and Doc. I'm a long-time listener and EO subscriber, Extreme Opportunities, which is your service. So if he's unhappy from here, it's your fault. If he's happy, I'm going to collect the credit. Right, right. No, he must be unhappy because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of companies are in red. It's, okay. been, a tough, it's been a tough little while. Hmm. He says, it's, a, um, it's the first time I've asked a question. Love the podcast. Been listening since 2018. Thank you, mate. And have the confidence to keep buying in this climate of pandemic and economic disaster. My question should you place your shares in a DRP, a dividend reinvestment plan, during these low times so you get extra shares at a much lower rate? And when the economy recovers, you switch off the DRP and enjoy the dividends. That's a really, really good question, mate. So, um, question, so there's a timing component, not timing, but you know, um, when to reinvest the dividends and when to enjoy the dividends. So there's that, there's that question. There's also the DRP question, the dividend reinvestment plan. So maybe you can tell us what a DRP is. I know you're not really a dividend guy, but I'll, I'll throw the first question to you. Yeah. Um, and then talk about whether or not it's appropriate at this particular point in time. Yeah. So, so the dividend reinvestment plan, basically the, gov- uh, the company says, instead of giving you the dividend, I can give you the equivalent number of shares. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes the companies do that explicitly, which basically means that they're not actually um, sending out cash, but instead printing some shares. Uh, sometimes the broker does it for you, in which case the broker basically just buys the shares in the market yep. using your cash. Either way, it's still a cash payment to you as far as um, you know the books are concerned. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's the dividend reinvestment plan in, in essence. So it the plan be- automates the process of buying more company shares with your dividends yep. rather than giving you the cash. That's right. And and you know it's an interesting way. If you like the company, you like the price, effectively it's, it's a, like a dollar cost averaging sort of thing. Mm. Uh, you know, when the price is high, you get fewer shares. When the price is low, you get more shares. And it's, yeah, I mean, you know, he's an EO subscriber. There are not many companies on the EO which actually pay a dividend. So this probably doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, in, in general, I think it, again, depends on, you know, if you want to accumulate more shares, it's, a, it's one of the ways to mm-hmm. do it. Um, if you think the company is reasonably fairly valued or undervalued, then this is a reasonable way to, again, add more shares. Yeah. Um, if you think it's in the trading at the higher end of its valuation, then it's probably not, a, you know, it's, you know, I would say, you know, if, you're, if you think the shares are a hold and not a buy, um, yeah, right. uh, then it's probably not the right thing to do with um, uh, with the cash to buy more shares, right? You're basically adding to your position. Mm. Um, so, so that's the, you know, the basic consideration I would have. Um I don't think, look, I don't have a economic angle to it. I basically, I mean, the economic angle comes in in terms of how you think about the price of the shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as such, I don't think about the economic aspect of the, the broader economy. It's, it's more, you know, what I think of the price. Mm. I actually don't do DRP at all. 
largely because you'd have to go look and think and you know whether to turn it on, <laughs> turn it off, and so on. Yeah. So I'm not a participant of DRPs. I just take the cash where appropriate. And most of my companies actually don't pay that much dividend anyways. So it's a small amount of cash that comes in, which I just keep in the brokerage account. Use that to just buy shares that I like. Nice, good idea. I think that's the question, Siegfried. So th- there's two parts, as I said. The, the, the timing bit. Look, I, I I have been buying shares. I'll continue to buy shares. Other people prefer to wait and see what happens. That either is either is fine. DRPs are kind of it's it's a form of I'll call it pre-commitment, right? So there's a whole lot of you know behavioral psychology research done, and you know what we want to do is avoid our psychological biases right we want to be as clear thinking as we can and make the right decisions that we can at the time they need to be made and that's really hard to do for a million different reasons Um, some of those are our inability to make the right decisions at the right time Uh, but we are able to make those decisions in advance or at least absent some of those stimulus like for example pessimism around market movements so what a DRP does is it's a pre-commitment device. It says, when I get the dividend, I'm going to reinvest it rather than spending it or leaving it in cash or not getting around to it or whatever in a way that also saves you a couple of bucks on brokerage. Um, it's not a huge deal, but it can be. You know, If you're getting 100, 200 bucks worth of dividends and you can reinvest that rather than spending 20 bucks brokerage to reinvest 100 bucks, then that actually does have some meaningful savings and that, that can be worthwhile for that reason as well. I... <sighs> I say all the time, and I'll say again because it's one of the things I really want to get in people's heads is the best advice and the the best advice isn't the most rational, logical, theoretical advice. It's the it's the advice that people are most comfortable with following. Um, for many many people who aren't just investing nerds like Doc and I, um, like I don't take, I don't do DRP either, Doc. As you as you do as you don't, I'd rather take the cash and then decide where I want that cash to go. For many people though who are investing, they kind of know the companies they bought. They don't really want to have to think about where the dividends go, worry about the brokerage. They're happy to still kind of let that thing happen, right? So plenty of bank shareholders made a lot of money just by saying they ticked the DRP box in 1985 and just let it do its thing. And that's been a fantastically wonderful and successful strategy. Now, could you invest in better ideas than banks at different times? Absolutely. And so if you're a, an active investor who really wants to pick the right stocks, then take your cash is a much better idea because the chance that the company you already own is your single best idea is just really, really low. Um, if you own 30 companies, you love all 30, there's going to be one you like best or two or five you like best. Uh, and so invest, reinvesting in every one of those 30 companies is probably not the best use of the cash purely theoretically. That being said, if you're not an active investor and you're happy to sort of let compounding do its thing, I think DRPs can be great for many, many people who, again, like you're better off doing something than nothing. And if something is DRP automatically, I think that's a great strategy. Talk any more thoughts on that? No, I think you summarized it beautifully. Next question, mate, comes from Jay. Jay is started off the way all questions should start off. That is with good. Unvarnished praise. So, so Jay says, "Hi, fools! Capital F O O L S. Hi, fools! I would just like to say thank you for all that you provide the investing layman on a weekly basis. I really look forward to your entertaining discussions each week. See, Jay, that's what we like to hear." We're very simple people. We have egos the size of head. No, we don't really. But, you know, it's always nice to be positive. He says, I'm an EO member for the past six to eight months. And during the past week, I have been sifting through the back catalogue of recommendations to, I like this, to hopefully snag a bargain or two. I would love an opinion. Premium, PPS is the stock code, down over the last year or so without the heavy decline of the previous few weeks, but has reasonable figures of increasing revenues and funds under administration. Is this a market deciding this small company cannot compete with the others in the same sector? Or am I missing something? Their figures from their latest half yearly reports and investor presentation. Cheers, folks. Jay. So we don't often give away service recommendations on this podcast, mate, but it was a good question from Jay and a good chance to talk about a company that many people mightn't have heard from your scorecard. So Premium, it's spelled P R A E M. 
IUM. I, you know what I really hate? I hate coming to make up words for the company. Nah. They're really annoying. I hate tickers, numbers and tickers too. That's a different question. Anyway, Premium has done that. I don't suggest it makes them a better or worse company. Just, just it irritates me. Um, what do you, what do you say to Jay about Premium? Is it does it deserve to be so badly beaten up, or is there something that is missing? Yeah, so I think that's, that's a brilliant question. So a um, couple of things. So Premium is basically an investment platform company, right? Um, What's that, man? So basically, you know, they, they they manage investments for funds, superannuation funds and things like that. So, you know, and uh, even for um, financial advisors, basically, you know, you can go into this platform and on through this platform manage funds for others. Right? Okay. So and, they, 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 they're doing the plumbing for the funds management industry. Yeah, so so they're doing the, for the wealth management industry. Let's right, say right, right. it at broadly. Yes, yes. They have operations in. They do a few other things, like they know they provide tax reporting, um, you know, auditing and so on. So basically, all the as you said, you know, back office stuff that needs to be done um, if you're a wealth manager. Right, right. right? Um, now they have operations in Australia. They have operations in uh, in basically in operations in, in Australia, New Zealand, mm. and in internationally in some parts, but mostly in the UK. Mm. Now, one of the things to remember is that any of these companies are tied to the market in mm-hmm. the sense that you know number of transactions going through, number of transactions being made, amount of funds under management. You know, the, when when I say fund or assets under management, you yep. know, total amount of assets that are being held, and you get a small percentage of that. Right? Now, if the share market falls twenty five percent, that means you're going to get twenty five percent less money. Yeah, exactly, because your assets have been hit, right? So, um, so therefore, some of the decline definitely makes sense because if mm. this, if if you're you know if you had 10 billion dollars of assets or 20 billion dollars of assets now you have got 8 billion dollars of mm. assets <laughs> from 10 you are down 20% mm. and therefore your you know fees are also down so i think that that part is re- but here's the interesting thing this type of company is mm. typically not the one to go belly up because uh, i mean you know unless the, the fund management industry basically goes to zero, which means the entire ASX basically goes to zero, uh, which I right, think is right. going to happen. Right. The, these companies are going to be around, so therefore, they, you know, this uh, plumbing needs to happen. Yes, the, the, so I think part of the problem is the growth is going to dissipate or disappear to some extent because mm. it's going to become harder and harder to find um, more money inflow into platforms because, mm. again, you know, for growth, you need a growth environment that supports growth, right? You need people to be able to, they need to be able to get more deals. They need to get people who are in traditional platforms to jump to these platforms and all of these things become difficult yeah, right. in a difficult trade environment, mm-hmm. right? Um, so growth um, is going to be hard. It also means that, you know, the UK business was, you know, running, getting very close to becoming, or international business becoming very close to becoming profitable. But, you know, again, that's what I talk about scale. Mm. Um, they're trying to be- build that scale up to be profitable. In this environment, it's going to be harder to actually get to that scale, right? Mm. So it's going to be a drag on the uh, drag on the profit, mm. of the company. So uh, I rate this type of company as a much lower risk company in terms of going broke, but it okay. makes the competitive environment. Uh, the competitive environment is definitely not suitable. Um, yeah. Therefore, the share price has fallen. Um, does it come out the other end of this stronger? Is it, is it under threat from competitors? So, so I think the interesting thing here is that if you think about the independent platform companies, so basically these are not the banks or uh, insurance company owned platforms. Mm. Uh, so they're not, you know, there are like basically four major players. Right? There's there's NetWealth, there's Hub24, there's um, Premium, and there is uh, OneView. Right. OneView is actually the leader in the superannuation industry management side. Uh, its shares too have been completely, you know, killed. Um, 
I think, again, I think whether or not, it's hard to say which one is going to come up stronger. I think mm. the leader, the two leaders in this field are um, Hub24 and uh, NetWealth in the, in you know, in what we call the independent platform space. Okay. I think these guys are definitely better positioned because they have bigger balance sheets. This is a smaller company. Mm. So it's, yeah, but I, I don't, I don't read, as I said, I don't think there's a risk here for this company disappearing. What would my, my, I think the prices are good. That's why we left it as buy. Okay. One of the things I'd caution anyone is, I wouldn't say that a premium is of that quality that you basically back up the truck and start loading up on it. You know mm, what I mean? Mm. So in a diversified portfolio, this deserves a smaller share allocation, um, but it is not a company that you know I would go and add like you know I'll not put ten percent of my portfolio in, into this as an example, right? Mm, mm. So I think um, I think it makes I, I think it will do okay mm. i think it will uh, come back up when the mm. you know the situation with the coronavirus and the economy has stabilized um you know over time i would think that you know the mm. amount of money being managed is going to go up over time the amount of money being managed by these guys is going to go up at some point they basically hit that critical scale and they start basically becoming a you know a cash flow machine um so yeah, I think, mm. you know, basically what the market is saying and what I'm saying is that effectively that point at which it becomes a cash flow machine has been further deferred out, which is what the uncertainty is right now. Mm. How long has it been deferred out is the question. So, yeah, I, I think I nibble on it. Um, but, um, you know, it's not like this. the market has got it completely wrong. I think mm. the market mm. is, as you said, you know, accounted for the fact basically that the AUM is down. Mm. So AUM being assets under management. Very good, man. That's a really thorough answer. Thank you for thank you for that, and Jay. Hopefully, that helps you. Um, I feel like every time we mention a company these days, we we should say as part of a diversified portfolio, <laughs> not because the individual company itself needs. In all instances, that view, but maybe that's maybe that's kind of as we said on Friday. Maybe that's kind of the key message right now, right? It's like you know, expect like we always should, but right now maybe it helps to focus the mind to to almost always. And if we don't ever say it, please assume we're adding the words as part of a diversified portfolio at the end of our end of our end of our uh, our answer, mate. Next question in a second. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right. This one came from Daniel. I, I quite liked this question as a general one, mate. And I, you and I have different views on this, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Daniel says, Scott and Doc, I have analysis paralysis. I have a decent amount of money to invest. It's almost well, it's high five figures. And was wanting to go 50% VAS, 50% VGS. Now, these are two Vanguard funds. VAS is the Vanguard ASX 300 ETF. VGS is the Vanguard rest of the world, excluding Australia ETF. So he's basically saying half the money in Australia, half the money in the rest of the developed world. I know you shouldn't time the market, but I don't know if tomorrow will be a good time to invest. And that's the question. Doc. So let's go the, um, well, let's take them in turn. Maybe, I don't know which one. You can choose. Uh, tell me first about the, or sorry, tell me in two parts about the allocation between an Australian and a rest of the world ETF. And then separately, tell me whether now is the time to do it or whether he should wait. Yeah, so, I mean, an Australian ETF gives you exposure to the Australian market. The international ETF basically gives you ex-Australia exposure. Um, so you get the world in two bites. <laughs> Yeah, and I, th- I think it's an interesting strategy to do it that way. Yeah, how much do you devote in each market mm. is really a personal question because there's a lot of factors here. The factors to consider in my, again, this is my personal opinion. This is what 
I think is right. It does not necessarily mean it's right for anyone else. Um, and I am no financial advisor or planner in that sense, and I have mm. no idea of what people have and what <laughs> they're doing. So um, I'm going to put all of those things as yes. basically yes. Good, good work. how I do it. Um, I look at a couple of things. You know, if your job, if my job is in this country, Mm-hmm. If I live in this country. Mm-hmm. If I have a house in this country, most three things are all true. That if this all those things are true, <laughs> then I have significant exposure to life in Australia. I'm already invested in Australia. I'm invested in Australian society. I want the Australian society to succeed because my success depends on the success of the Australian society to a large extent, Indeed. right? Um, so, so that that's all. so. So, in a way, I look at all of those as factors when I decide how much I'm going to put, um, and right. then I look at international I said well okay I'm not personally invested directly but the one way to get directly invested is basically to uh, or indirectly invested is basically by via equities right and um, so it's a bit of a hedging strategy if you call it that um, mm. that you know if something is not right here then might be right somewhere else and therefore it kind of hedges out um, so that's one consideration uh, it's 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 basically how much how many eggs do I want to put in one basket mm. is the other way to look at it the the final thing I guess that's very important consideration for uh, for anyone is the exchange rate right mm-hmm. and uh, if you if you're buying in Australian dollars and you're buying in Australian dollars um, and you're selling in Australian dollars but if you're buying in say US dollars or you're buying a US dollar translated into um, an Australian dollar then the exchange rate actually plays a role mm. and uh, the you know there are other funny dynamics as well involved because if you're buying international companies um, or buying an ETF that holds international companies um, those companies are then trading in, in, in also in US dollars right and mm. a stronger US dollar actually um, hurts those businesses to some extent. Actually, you know, if they had a weaker US dollar, yeah, right. it would be actually useful. So there's there's a profit implication too that needs to be considered. Um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah, so there's a minor <laughs> things. My rule of thumb is basically, I think, well, have some Australian exposure. Mm. And then after that, my rule of thumb is you know and i have some cash so have some cash have some australian exposure and then my rule of thumb is really i want to invest i don't then anymore consider geography mm. geography is not a consideration when i invest when i want to invest i basically invest in the best companies i can find yep. uh, relative to and the best is is, 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 is a hard word but mm. you know what i mean by best is relative to price um relative to opportunity yeah relative to where things could potentially be i basically want to own the best in that basket mm-hmm. and if that best happens to be in australia that's fine if the best happens to be in china that's fine if the best happens to be in argentina that's mm-hmm. fine um yeah so the idea is to you know for bulk of my portfolio then is to basically find the, the best the greatest uh because ultimately what I, what i think is the best and the greatest are going to deliver strong outperformance mm-hmm. and then at and at, at, at that scale and, and if you have strong outperformance on that scale, then the exchange rates don't matter. And if it's an Australian company, then the exchange rate doesn't matter. Um, what about for an index, mate? When, when Daniel's not going to buy individual stocks, he's buying the index. So at some degree, if you're right, the great thing about being a stock picker is it gives us a chance to beat the market, hopefully even by a decent amount over time. Well, of course, we also run the risk of losing to the market. And that's the risk we take when we pick individual stocks. Um, from, a, from an index perspective, you're buying the whole market. 
How do you think about that particular question? In fact, this was a question I was we were talking about off air. Actually, I didn't even. Uh, I think I may have, maybe I, maybe I mentally uh, had this in the back of my mind. Maybe subliminally, I was I was channeling the question. If you're not going to do that, you've kind of got to then look at the 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 total market, total indexes separately, right? So VGS, the the, the global is about two thirds US, one third the rest of the developed world, um, UK and, and Europe in particular. Uh, Japan is a large chunk of that. Are you are you confident enough to? Yeah, how, how would you think about currency in that context when you're not picking the individual stocks in that index ETF? Yeah, like that's I, like you know, I actually don't invest in ETFs in that sense. Mm. So, um, I have a yeah. I, I really, I mean, maybe I don't don't know is the answer. <laughs> the, 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 the problem here, I think, is I would expect mm. various indices over time to be kind in the same ballpark, you right. know, plus minus something. Yeah. Uh, but I would also think that the plus minus something is, I don't know how the currency of those individual companies and their performance. It's hard, right? Return. It's so hard. So, uh, yeah, I think the best will outperform the index by a big margin. Mm. Uh, best companies. Man. The best companies. Yep. <laughs> but the index <Yep>. of <laughs> stuff, which is basically going to have 2,000. Yeah. Like, I mean, 2,000 companies are not the best companies in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, totally. And uh, whereas I want to find the 30, maybe 40 best companies I can find. And when I find 40 best companies, I am pretty damn sure that I'm going to trash the index <laughs> over a long term. Right. Like, I mean, over the long term, it's going to beat any any index. So, that, so that's the, yeah. But if you want a safe way... You know, in my mind, that's actually the safest way to find the 50 best companies you can find and just invest in them. Mm-hmm. You know, what can be safer than that? Because if those 50 companies don't survive yep. and you don't make good returns on them as long as you bought them in good, well, the other, you know, mm-hmm. 1,950 mm-hmm. companies on the index are also not going to do well yeah. because the best are likely to survive. So, you know, you know what David Gardner, our co-founder, has this, you know, uh, beautiful saying, invest in, you know, add, you know, buy excellence, add to excellence and sell mediocrity. Right, and I take that really to heart when mm. I invest. Mm. So, I don't know. I mean, index investing to some extent is is it 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 goes away from that um, excellence. Mm. <laughs> so I I actually don't have a good answer for that. With the with the exception, I guess. The, I mean, maybe I'm looking for a, a silver lining. Um, to some degree, the best companies will become a larger part of the index over time and drive those index returns, right? You find when they're really small, that's not the case. But if you were to take and I, let me just throw names at you, you know. Um, Actually, I won't throw names at you. If you if you take a if you take a you know the, the companies that, that drive the U.S. market or the Australian market are likely to become larger shares of that. Um, the businesses that are you know the, the growth businesses of yesterday are the other titans of today and so on. So you get some of that, but as you say, by concentrating on the best ideas, you you don't get it. Are you going to give Daniel a straight answer though, or, or do you want me to pick it up? Pardon? Are you going to give Daniel a straight answer on his index uh, idea, or will I will I grab it? Well, but I think he, he has said 50-50, so Let's say right? he's, not going to, he's not going to buy stocks. Yeah. He's not going to buy indexes. He's going to buy these two in some proportion. What, I, yeah. I, I think the 50-50 does good diversification. I mean, you know, I can, uh, if if I, that was the only, like if I was, there was a choice and I have to invest in index, would I cheer up? The 50-50 is fine. Uh, I could even go, you know, I'd probably put maybe 30% in uh, in, uh, in Australia, maybe put, you know, 70% overseas again. Yeah. If, if, if Again, the problem with that consideration really is I don't know what his... Um, other Australian yeah, exposure is, right? Yeah. So if, for example, I am... A, and we can't tell you directly know what you should do anyway, but yeah. so doctrine is generally. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying generally. And, and uh, you know, if I owned a huge piece of land in Australia and that's worth like, you know, yeah. several million dollars, yeah, I right. don't know, um, you know, that's, that's an it asset. It changes things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. changes yeah. stuff 
dramatically. On the other hand, if I if I owned like you know a palace in in New York, yeah, well that changes stuff, right, like, you know. So yeah. so I think yeah, you have to consider holistically. I think is holistic consideration is really important. So yep. I'm not actually answering the question. <laughs> 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 Dosh, taking a pass. <laughs> I um uh, let, let me let me ask you actually. I'm going to ask you two quick things. So would you if you were Daniel, how would you go about that that large sum of money? Would you invest it now? Would you invest it in slow, regular amounts? Would you wait? How, how would you think about the timing of that investment, particularly where we are in the market? Like, you know, this is my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's my... So the problem with all of these answers is... So actually, I'll actually caveat that. If you are sitting on a lot of cash and you can tolerate a little bit of volatility because we've already seen a lot more, lot of volatility. So, you know, I'm saying that you should get mm-hmm. some more volatility. Now's a good time to invest. Yep. Yep. Because the market has already dropped, like you know, what something like thirty percent. Can it drop more? Sure, yeah. but you know, <laughs> on uh, but on average, yeah. I think from here on, if you take like a five, six, ten year view, if yeah. you can actually take a ten year view from now, I think you're at a very good spot. So it's a good time to invest. Particularly as you said, I think probably on Friday's podcast that there are there are chances that that some maybe even a lot of companies go broke over the next six to twelve months. Yeah. But if you're buying the index and you're buying over a long period of yeah. time, you're kind of reducing both those risks to some yeah. degree. So as long I caveat that by saying as long as you're willing to take a volatility, yep. and ride it because it's going to be still volatile, it's a great time. So to add money and to buy and basically you're removing that company risk by buying the ETF so yeah I'd absolutely, in uh, in most normal times what I'd say that if you have accumulated X amount of dollars in mm. Y years mm. then I would invest in if this is my formula yep. I would invest that X in no faster than Y over 2 <laughs> Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So you know, because I mean, I invest regularly, but if yeah, I yeah. have, if I have taken like five years to accumulate something, yeah, yeah, then I would not invest it faster than two and a half. That's just my own personal. That's a really interesting idea. Um, but haven't heard it expressed that way before. Um, uh, but yeah, if if, if I had, hmm. yeah, now and you want to do this, I think that's a great time. Nice. Um, only because I'm an opinionated someone, so I'm going to give my opinion as well. Uh, Daniel, I so actually, Doc, I've got one more question for you first because I had thought of this as well. Daniel wants some international, some local. If you're going to do that in some proportion, we can talk about the you've talked about the proportions. Maybe it's fifty, maybe it's thirty, seventy. Is the Vanguard MSCI World X Australia, which is the name of the ETF VGS, is that the, the instrument you would choose to get non-Australian exposure, or is there other 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 options you would go to instead? Yes, yeah, so I I think that's a broad index. I am super broad, right? Yeah, super broad. So that's probably not my action, my favorite. That, you know, like there are hundreds of ETFs, so you could look at. Um, so a couple of ones that come to my mind. There is a Moat, um, a Morningstar Moat ETF that I think is actually very interesting. The code is very helpfully Moat, M-O-A-T. Yeah, and it's <laughs> called Moat, and it has actually, the ticker code is also Moat. And the reason I think it's interesting is what basically Moat means, and this is a Buffett term, um, is these are companies with, you know, uh, basically strong staying qualities mm. right and these are companies that are, have ballast these are companies that have got some growth they're basically high quality companies and they're basically using a valuation view to buy these companies it's not going to give you this diversification of you know thousands of companies it's going to be like a smaller list of maybe 60 companies or 50 companies or something like that right. but um I would also think that you know that is going to actually outperform the index okay. as such uh, from this point on. So that's one example. And that's uh, more that's more an active fund that happens to be exchange traded, right? That's not an index fund in any way, shape, or form. It's it's yeah. Morningstar's own kind of preferred investments. Yeah. So, so Morningstar's you know, model of yeah, you know yeah. Morningstar's valuation. So you have to believe that those nice. guys are doing the right thing, and 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 so on. It's got actually good historical results. Um, nice. So that's one example. What about at an index level? If I, if I said you'd go index, 
There's so the ones I can think of myself. There's an S and P 500, which is US market. There's a Nasdaq version. There is a an Asian sort of tech version. Um, they're probably the big ones. Yeah, uh, on top of the the Vanguard rest of world. Are there any of those? So the Nasdaq 100, for example, it's an active recommendation in uh, in EO. It just sounds strange, but it is. <laughs> um, and and the Asia Tech, which is also called Asia. Mm. Um, you know, I think those are great candidates to actually consider. And if you're, if you're looking for straight up index investing, I think those two are interesting ones to consider. I think they'll be volatile, yeah. uh, perhaps more volatile than uh, you know the old world version. Mm. But I also think that from this point on, uh, the chance that they outperform just an index index, mm. as in like the broad market index, is um, uh, when I say broad market, I mean the whole market index is um, is pretty high. So yeah, I mean those are, I think my my preferred go to would be uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a techie, so I like my preferred mm-hmm. go to is yep. is be tech. Um, like it, yeah. But and, and the Nasdaq 100 gives you approximately 100. It's not pure tech because there are non-techs mm. in it mm. as well. Um, and and the Asia, the Asia tech though is again you're getting a smaller exposure. So you know, I think it'll be only about maybe 40, 50 odd companies. It's very similar to the mm. moat. But yeah, those those three would be the ones that I would I would suggest having a look and having a little bit of a study and seeing what they have and nice. looking at their past performance. Uh, yeah, this is a time if you're about cash, you've got lots of op- options actually yeah. to look at. Very nice. Daniel, Doc's on a great job. I'm going to get my two bobs worth. Um, I, I tried, started doing that, had a better question for Doc, so I asked him first. Okay, so I would, you know what? I would be really happy with anyone investing the whole amount now if you have a vol- something for volatility and a long term perspective and you're buying a diversified product. So that would be the answer. I don't think I would though. I don't know I'd necessarily go as far as Doc. So I'll do like the, the X over two idea. I think that's really smart. Um, I would dollar cost average over the next say six months. So just because here's the thing, the way investors, the way humans are wired, if you invest now the money in the market goes in, you go, bugger, I should have waited. If you don't invest, the market goes up, you go, bugger, I should have, I should have done something. Um, if you do it slowly, guess what happens? If you put money to work now, so let's say, let's say you've got, I'll pick a number, 100 grand. If you put 10 grand in the market now, the market goes up, you feel better because you've got you made some money and you've still got 90 grand to invest. If the market goes down, you're kind of a bit grumpy, you've lost money, but you go, great, I can spend the next 90 grand at cheaper prices, that's even better. And so the human mind needs to find, uh, you know, to some degree, solace for, for pain. And that gives you a bob both ways. Um, so I would probably suggest, if it was me, I think I, for most people, again, you may be different, Daniel. You might be happy to do it now, and that's great. If not, think about breaking up into chunks over, say, six months, just as, a, as an arbitrary number, not because I expect anything to happen by the middle of September, just because it lets you take advantage of that kind of human reality of, you know, you wait, you know, you get some upside or downside early, and you've got more money to invest later. That gives you a bit of a bob both ways. That That's, to my mind, a worthwhile idea. I actually like Doc's 3070 idea when it comes to international versus Australia, or Australia versus international, to get the order right. I like... The idea that you've you know, you've got a home and a family and a possibly a partner at some point and their you know family and job um, all that stuff is in Australia. Um, I think there's a lot of benefit. And again, the other thing is just straight out remembering that Australia is two percent of the world's markets. Um, I've said this before, but if I said to anybody, if you said to me, "Look, I'm going to invest in the market," and I said, "All you can do, you see, I'm going to invest in the ASX," and I say, "Okay, cool," um, but you can only invest in these forty companies, and I'll just pick them at random. They're two percent of the of the ASX. They, they're all you can invest in. You would say to me. Why the hell should I be restricted to just 2% of the ASX companies that are not 
the best necessarily. In, you know, I'm not choosing them because they're the best. I'm not choosing them because they're you know uh, somehow diversified or better or whatever. I'm just literally saying only the companies start with A and B, or only every you know every every fiftieth company you can invest in. You'd rightly say go and get stuffed. Except if we only invest in Australia, that's all we do. Now, you are not doing that. You're saying 50-50 and that, that makes sense. I wouldn't say 98-2, obviously, either. Um, for a whole lot of reasons. You've got to think about tax, you've got to think about franking credits, uh, think about currency. So there's reasons not to do exactly that. But a 37, I reckon, is probably a really good split if you are comfortable with managing through currency value variations and that kind of stuff. So I would, I think 37 is great. 50-50 is also great. But something like that, I think, is a really good idea. Um, in terms of what you invest in, I struggle with this one because it, it kind of comes down to what you, why you're choosing the index funds. If you are literally saying, I want big, diversified, forget about it. I'm doing it specifically because I want to harness the world's market and get the growth of the world market. That's exactly the right thing to do. When you start to think, I'll buy the NASDAQ or I'll buy the Asian ETF or I'll buy the S&P or I'll buy the FTSE or I'll buy the you know Nikkei, um, you start to make active bets. You start to say to yourself, I think this is going to do better than that and here's why. That's not wrong. It's not bad. But if, you're, if your starting point is, I want broad diversified indices um, to invest against, then once you start being active to Doc's point originally, once you say, well, I think I'll buy the NASDAQ instead because I think they're better, then you might as well go to the next step and say, well, which NASDAQ companies? And then, and then you're in that active space. And that, as Doc's already said, can be a wonderful way to invest, a really good idea to do. Um, so I kind of, I have, I have, I have, I feel like to some degree, sometimes we're a bit half pregnant when we choose indexes or indices, sorry, or ETFs that are not broad index ones, but are somehow active in some way, shape or form. Um, I don't think it's wrong. I just think you need to be very clear about why you're buying an ETF and what you're aiming to achieve. And if it is pure diversification, then I think the combination of the Vanguard Australia and the Vanguard rest of the world is a perfect combination. So I actually like a lot that suggestion. 50-50 is perfect. 30-70 might be an option. I also, by the way, do like the idea. I, I own some NASDAQ ETF, for example, right? So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying I'm an active stock picker and I've, I've chosen that specifically because I do think that'll outperform. But I am, I am taking active risk for active return that you don't have to take if you buy a broader index. Have I confused everyone yet, Doc? Um, no, I think that's it. <laughs> All right. Question from Anonymous. I have an anonymous question for the amazing pod I've been following for a while now. I assume he means ours. I think so. <laughs> the question is, I oh, says, sorry, he says, keep up the fantastic work. However, I have a question and a concern. This is particularly relevant, Doc, because there is some news out on this Thursday we're recording this. He says, with the coronavirus hitting New York City as hard as it is, how likely is the New York Stock Exchange to shut down for a number of days? And what's the carryover effect for the ASX? Now, I read a headline this morning. I haven't read the article, I have to say. I think I might have read the, the excerpt at the top. Uh, they are shutting the New York Stock Exchange trading floor, but not the New York Stock Exchange. And this will be part of the answer to the question. So, Doc, I don't know if you've read the story or not. Have you read the story? Yeah, I've read okay. the story, yeah. So, they're basically going to shut down the trading floor. They're sending everyone home saying, don't come here and shout and yell and point over everyone else and with a resultant spittle and germs that fly around. Stay home. Just use your computers. We're good at that by now. Fair to say, Doc, there is no trading floor in Australia at all, is there? I don't think so. So you don't need a physical trading floor. And whether the New York Stock Exchange shuts down won't be a question of whether or not people can physically attend, but it might be things like the impact on the economy and that kind of stuff. So I will say before I throw it to you, Doc, there is zero chance of New York Stock Exchange shutting down 
because of the health impacts for the traders of coronavirus. I'm being very specific here because there is always a chance that exchanges, regulators, politicians close markets for a period of time in, in high amounts of panic or concern. So I'm not for a second saying it can't happen, but it won't happen and specifically hasn't happened because of the health concerns because they've already addressed that literally this morning or overnight our time as we come into here. Mate, how likely is it the New York Stock Exchange gets shut down and what is the impact on the ASX if it does? Um, I would rate the possibility of that exchange shutting down as very, very low. Yeah. Um, yeah, they might. They might actually, uh, you know, for some European exchanges have actually now right now made shorting illegal. Yeah. That may happen, uh, but even that I think has right now low probability of it happening. Now they did shut the New York Stock Exchange after the 9-11 attacks from memory. Now, that, again, was 20 years of technology ago, so maybe that's part of the reason. It's only possible they do close the market because of economic or political dislocations from time to time when they worry that yeah. politicians and regulators will close markets when they when they fear that an uninformed or frankly just completely freaked out market will do stupid things. And so they try and do it for our own good. Um, there's there's a question about whether that's valid because if you shut the New York Stock Exchange but leave London open, then people will find a way to trade New York futures in London. So most of the time they realise that that people will find a way to make the trades they want to make. They might as well have a, a public transparent exchange. So it is possible it gets closed, but you reckon very, very unlikely, mate? Yeah, I think it's unlikely at this point. Again, it's hard to know what exactly is going to happen, but yep. yeah, I, I, I agree it's unlikely. And the chance that the ASX gets shut down is probably equally as unlikely. Yeah, I think it's equally unlikely. I mean, you know, just because the prices are falling doesn't mean that they're going to shut down the exchange. I mean, uh, right. I, I mean, one of the biggest things, actually, it will create a big fear, right? Because if you shut down the exchange, you're basically taking out liquidity. Yeah. Right? I mean, one of the reasons we have the stock market is it's, it's liquid and every day you can buy and sell and you can basically get your money, right? Yep. Uh, you know, you get less money today if you sell, but I mean, there is liquidity there. So I think yeah. mm, uh, that's very important to remember. I think, you know, regulators will remember that uh, but yeah, there might be you know extenuating circumstances in which it can get shot. But yeah. you know, I wouldn't say right now we are at that extenuating circumstances. Thank you, sir. Very good. I completely agree. I think it's remarkable and likely. It's probably a bad thing if it happens. Unless as it can be, if they do, I'm not. I'm not worried if they do do it. Quite frankly, I, that's the other thing. Is if they shut the market, don't freak out. Like it, it'll it'll reopen and then we'll get back to business. Um, almost certainly, the market will tank the day, the day they reopen it. Um, I, I don't think we need to, as investors, worry about it. And if you're trying to day trade the market, well, you maybe have some issues. For the rest of us, you know, uh, Buffett himself talks about the fact that you should invest as if they close the doors for periods of time. Um, whether you choose that or not is different, but the reality is that it just has no impact on us if they close the close the market. Next question, mate. Let's do it. Real money advice from real people, not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. This one's from a bloke who calls himself TC, T-E-A-S-E-A. -E -E I assume it's uh, the letters TC in short for something. Maybe it's uh, Tony Coughlin or uh, Terry Crown. I don't know. <laughs> um, he says, hey, Scott and Doc, podcast question for the mailbag. He says, cheers for the shout out on your page the other day, Scott. Made me feel great about a positive financial decision. I did do that. So TC follows me on Facebook. I'm Scott Phillips Money if you want to do the same thing. Um, TC made a fantastic financial decision. I, I gave him a bit of a shout out because he did a good job. Uh, so jump online and find out what that was. He's got a question about interest rates, mate. He says, given that we are at 0.5% now, I should say, again, in as we record this, a few hours time, the RBA will make an announcement and almost certainly cut those rates. So this is a, a question in advance of what it might happen this afternoon. 
If the RBA goes to zero or to negative interest rates, as the term is, how does this impact our home loan rates? Do the banks continue to cut every time the RBA cuts or increase negative rates? Or do we eventually get to a point where our interest rate just flatlines out till the end of the cycle? Hope this makes sense. And he says, keep up the good work. And I would have sent a copy of this question to Doc, but he's not on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, sorry, he's not on Facebook and Twitter. Well, I'd rather not use that platform. He says some other more, more um, uh, colourful things about Twitter, <laughs> which I won't repeat because we're not exactly G-rated, but we don't, uh, we don't want to go too far. So mm. TC is not going to use Twitter. So he sent it to me on Facebook directly. Doc, mm. if the RBA keeps cutting, what happens to home loan rates? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, well... So it's interesting. I don't. Well, I personally don't think our home loan home loan rates are going to go to to zero. Mm-hmm. Probably be somewhere above zero, <laughs> um, because I mean, effectively, for us to get home loans at zero percent, the savers or the depositors effectively have to be getting negative right. rates. And if if the um, if if the savers are getting negative rate, they'll be putting money in the car, you know, under the mattress or yeah. under the chair. You don't want that. That's basically run on the banks. Um, so that I think is not going to happen. This is basically going to affect the interbank lending, which means basically it's going to try to push um, the banks to lend out the money, basically keep the liquidity flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, it absolutely, I mean, if everybody has cut rates, it absolutely also means that money raised from abroad would be also cheaper to raise, although there's be a currency factor involved in it. Um, actually, right now, yeah, if you can raise a billion dollars in, in, in USD, you would mm. actually get a lot more in AUD, so that will <laughs> help. Um, yeah, so I think our rates are going down. Mm. Um, as I've criticized Governor uh, Lowe before, um, multiple times, I think it was a mistake to cut the rates early on. Now it will come across as a definitely mistake because he doesn't have much firepower left. Yeah, um, yeah I think he was trying to solve an un, a problem that was not necessarily a problem at that time. Um, but yeah, like you know, it, you need to have the firepower for situations like this. We don't have much firepower, so yeah, I th- you know, the rates are probably going to go to zero. Um, but you know, as I've said before, I think they shouldn't have been cut when they were cut because we were worried about consumption. It was okay to live through a little bit of lower consumption, um, slightly higher unemployment rates and have the reserve to actually deal in situations like this. Uh, but anyways, I, I think it's a foregone conclusion that our rates are probably also going to zero just like everybody else's rates are going to go uh, zero. And then after that, what happens? I actually don't know. <laughs> no, we don't know. That, that's that's the most obvious answer we can give. Um, TC, yeah, it's worth worth saying that at rates, the official cash rate now is 0. 75, 0.5, I can't remember. No, ours is 0.5. Everywhere 0.5. else is almost like zero. Uh, and, and home loan rates are still 2.8-ish, right? So that, that margin is it gives you a sense of, you know, savers are getting paid a few percentage points. Um, borrowers are being charged for home loans, 2.8, higher for personal loans and credit cards, of course. But the mix of that is where roughly there. So you see there's a couple of percentage points, 200 basis points, as the boffins like to say, between the two rates. I expect that to remain. If we get to interest rates of minus 2%, frankly, we've got bigger issues. It won't, it won't, that won't happen. Um, the, the, the Reserve Bank will do quantitative easing and other things before it gets to the point of paying those. Well, so should that won't happen, anything can happen. Um, remarkably unlikely. And so I think that's what we'll see. Um, but yeah, if, if rates continue to fall, we should expect mortgage rates continue to fall. I'm going to say unpopularly here. Um, I said that also on, I was on Nine News last night with Peter Overton, bit of a plug for myself. I don't know why. You can't watch it now anyway. Um, you know, you asked if banks will pass on the cuts. I kind of hope they 
don't to, in full to some degree. The reason I say that is because we got through the GFC in part because we have a really, really strong banking system that they didn't have elsewhere because our banks were pretty vanilla. They just did the basic stuff. They hadn't. They weren't super leveraged. They weren't. You know, we had a very strong system, and I think to some degree, as we've learnt from the response or lack of to the coronavirus, having a strong, you know, system, an anti-fragile system, to use the term. I don't love because it's a bit cliched these days, but you know, having a bit of extra strength, a little bit less efficiency in the banks, a little bit more profit. While as borrowers and depositors, we'd like more of that money. Please, I think we have to be careful what we wish for, right? Because the more, the more efficient, the more streamlined, the more fragile. Therefore, a bank is the more economic risk there actually might be. So I got to say, I, I hope they'll, I, they'll pass on some um, to the extent they need to. I hope they keep some and I hope the politicians lay off them a little bit if that's required. Again, I don't want to, I'm not a bank shareholder, so I have no, I have no dog in that fight. Um, but I would take any day uh, a 0.1, 0.15% higher mortgage rate if I had a very strong belief that in doing so, that meant the banks were stronger and our economy was under less structural risk than otherwise might be the case. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. Question from Matt, mate, on Twitter. Came through just before we started recording, Matt, so you snuck in under the wire. Question for your always informative pod. Does the falling AUD impact index-based ETFs with a high US exposure, for example, the NASDAQ 100 ETF, as much as it does for individual stocks? I understand a lower dollar means less bang for your buck on buying US stocks, but not sure about ETFs. Doc, what happens when the dollar moves and you own an ETF versus a regular stock? It's a great question. I love it because I was looking at that uh, <laughs> this morning. So while the markets are falling, um, the NASDAQ 100 ETF actually in this morning was up 7% on the ASX, right? Why? Because the Australian dollar is falling <laughs> relative to the US dollar. So, and, and partly also because it looks at the, you know, um, people look at the future. So, I think mm-hmm. the part of the problem with our, um, with the NASDAQ trading here is it looks at the future. The futures are up yeah. there and the dollars have fallen. The combination of two actually gives you a kick. And I love this because, you know, in another service that we run, uh, Motley Full Pro, we actually hold a bunch of ETFs. And now people I know don't love buying ETFs, but one of the things I have been saying for a long time is you want to have ETFs that give you inverse exposure in some sense because um, it actually can be a hedge. In this sort of environment, uh, if you actually own the NASDAQ ETF, it actually gives you a bit of a hedge mm. against your Australian stocks that might actually be falling because you know you at least get the benefit of that US dollar. Now, you don't notice that when you own, own the US stocks directly, <laughs> but if you think in terms of Australian dollars right, and, right, and if right. your account actually shows that you're in Australian dollars, you actually will be feeling a little bit better because you're showing, in, in terms of Australian dollars, you're actually not that worse off. So it's a funny thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there is, there's absolute merit to, there's merit to holding international stuff for exactly that reason gives you a little bit of a diversification gives you a little bit of a um, mm. uh, you know you you play and also you know if you hold stocks in companies that actually operate mostly overseas they could be listed on the ASX but uh, but operate mostly overseas or get majority of their earnings from overseas or get a significant portion of their earnings from overseas mm. um, those two benefit so yeah it's a, it's a it's a it's a great question I think again I'm a big proponent of international investing mm-hmm. um, uh, a huge proponent I think you know if people don't do it they're missing out um, for a whole bunch of reasons, starting from all the way, like you know, from hedging to um, you know, hedging just not just your own risk, but your own, like you know, mm. uh, even from a portfolio basis. Actually, on these days like this, it would make you feel slightly better. You have something that is green and big green, um, uh, whereas a lot of you know other growth stocks might be actually down. So um, yeah, great question, and, and that's all I have to really say about it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I'll add a couple of thoughts. I just uh, I think 
I don't. If I'm if I'm reading his question right, it was basically the question of the exposure of Nasdaq versus the individual U.S. stocks. Um, generally speaking, the currency should impact them both the same because they're both priced in U.S. dollars as the underlying instrument. So, as Doc said, because the Nasdaq trades partly on futures, partly on actuals, it will move in a different time frame, a different way to it. So, once the U.S. market is closed, for example, you don't have necessarily futures on. Well, it, the stocks aren't trading, right? So you're trading the NASDAQ 100 ETF in, in Australian business hours while the US markets are closed. So you can't trade. I'll pick a company. Now. Doc, I won't ask you to talk about these companies because I'm not sure whether you're going to buy or sell them. I haven't asked you, so I, I won't ask you to do it. Um, if you were at Apple, for example, yesterday or overnight, it's not trading right now in the US. It's not trading here. So the changes to the, the dollar won't matter. The changes to the futures of Apple, I don't know if Apple's futures trade out of ours, don't matter. Uh, but certainly the NASDAQ ETF futures are trading and so that does matter. So you do get some timing differences. Over an extended period of time though, from point A to point B, say a week or a month, um, if the US dollar goes up by 10%, both in Australian dollars, your impact on owning Apple or owning the Nasdaq ETF will move by the same amount. So that that's, that's going to happen. That's going to be the way this works. And conversely, the other way. So yes, it's exactly the same. If you're buying US stock, uh, dollar stock, they're, they're both dominated effectively in US dollars. The Nasdaq ETF is based on the Nasdaq 100 index, which is measured in US dollars. So you do get that impact. You should get that impact over time. Um, so whatever you know, whatever issues you have or whatever views you want to take on the currency, by all means do it. But uh, just don't take that, uh, you know, don't expect that the ETF and the, and the stocks will trade differently. It just makes logical sense if you think about it. There would be arbitrage opportunity. Otherwise, you could, you know, buy every company in the, on the NASDAQ exchange and then short the ETF or you do the other, the other way around and make some money. If that was the case, someone else would be arbitraging it already. So, no, the, 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 the asset prices and the currency will have exactly the same impact on both instruments. Any more on that, Doc? Um, no. Cool. Question from Tim. Stand by. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Actually, a question from Tim and a question from Reno. I think it's the Twitter handle. Um, and a question for from Mr. S, which I'll ask separately. Mr. S is a self-given uh, pseudonym, so we'll go with that. The first question from Tim, though, and Reno, and then we'll, we'll answer them together. Hi, Scott and Doc. A question for you on the podcast. Does the current poor exchange rate mitigate any benefit of buying US stocks on sale? Are you buying US stocks currently? If so, which ones? Cheers, Tim. Doc, I won't ask you to answer the second part of that question. Um, The question, Marino. Hi, gents. Just wondering what your thoughts are on investing in the American market at the moment. There are some absolute bargains, but the dollar being at 60 cents is quite unattractive. Uh, the bad news, by the way, since that question came through, is the dollar's now at 56 cents, and goodness knows what it'll be by Sunday. So that's happening. Um, I'll ask Mr. S's question second because it's kind of related, but it's a little bit different. We'll talk about hedging and stuff. So I'll go back to that. Um, Doc, without talking about stocks, yeah. does the exchange rate mitigate any benefit you're seeing in buying those stocks? Are you changing the way you're sending money from your Australian bank account overseas to take advantage of any US bargains you're finding? It's a great question. So I'm not going to answer any specific stocks largely because I'm actually looking to buy maybe tomorrow. Or <laughs> there the we after. go. There we um, go. And yeah. Uh, and to be clear, Doc's not trying to keep anything from anybody. Our trading rules mean that he can't buy or sell anything within two days either side of mentioning a company. So if he mentions a company now, 
He's locked out. Let's go to air Sunday, so he couldn't buy on Monday and Tuesday, Tuesday night. So he couldn't buy on Wednesday night if he mentions the company now with this Thursday. So very reasonable view. We're not keeping anything from members or yeah. listeners. We're just simply it, – it just, it's just the way we have to um, – we don't have to. We've chosen to as a company have a two-day blackout window either side of mentioning up stock publicly. So Doc's not going to talk about companies. Yeah, so I'm not talking specifically about companies, but yeah, yeah, I share your view. So there's a large number of companies that are excellent, that are – probably you know um, selling way below what you could think is their long-term fair value uh, or if you know fair value if you assume you know their long-term futures are okay um, so yeah I mean it is really hard because I w- uh, I <laughs> I would like the dollar to be the strong dollar to be higher but it is not um, so the way I'm looking at it is uh, I think I'm going to take a hit in terms of my currency and that's okay as long as I'm willing to look really long term so I mean anything that I buy I I'm actually hardly a seller of stocks unless the thesis goes broke so I'm looking to buy something and hold it for 15 20 years I really don't know what the currency is going to do in 15 20 years but let's say it, you know let's say the currency goes back up from you know 58 59 cents to 70 uh, cents mm. so you know I need to make about what 20% so here's the problem right from 55 to 70 that's 25 cents on a basis of 55 cent share price it's close to 40 45% upside you're going to have to make to make back that amount because it works on the denominator of the 55 cent starting price and this yeah. is where it gets ugly the lower it falls the higher the mountain is to climb yeah so that that is definitely um, an issue but you know like if I hold something for uh, for 10 years, 15 years, and I make a five-bagger off it, um, you know, I lose some on exchange, I'll be okay with it, uh, is the way I look at it. You know, again, I think, yeah, it is a hard one. Again, if it was 60 cents, it would make more sense. 65 cents, it would make more sense. If it was like 70 cents, it more, makes more sense. But nobody knows what these change. I think if the exchange rate actually goes back to parity, then, then you need to make... Uh, 100% of it basically mm. to get back even so that that's the risk yeah so I don't know my my um, my personal strategy right now and this is not suitable for everyone is mm. if I find that a big brand or someone you know with essential services has been cut down um think substantially and then now's a good time to buy in my opinion but yeah I, I, I fully acknowledge that if you have um, some views on how the currency is going to be in mm. five years' time or ten years' time, I think then you would, um, you may choose not to invest, and which I think would make also sense. I find this super hard, mate. You know, I've had this conversation multiple times, and I just, I struggle because you have to, depending on your time frame and depending on how you think the dollar will move over time, and we can't know either of those two things in absolute sense. Let's 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 just pick, let's make really easy numbers, right? Let's say the dollar is twenty five percent below its long run average. I've got a five-year horizon. If I think, and it may not, by the way, but if the dollar was to go back to its long-term average over that five-year period, then I'm giving up 25 points of start that I have to make back just to make it even before I then get some investment returns on top of that. In other words, over five years, my average return is going to be five percentage points per year higher than the equivalent Australian investment. And so that's 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 the kind of the hurdle that we need. Now, I'm not trying to discourage anyone from doing that at all. It's just that when you when you work through the maths, that's that's the that's the view, and that to Tim and Reno, I absolutely understand the question, and that that's exactly what I've 
been reluctant and, and and probably you know I've, I've maybe missed some bargains but you you whatever you would invest in australia versus whatever you invest in in the us you simply have to believe the stock you're buying in the us is going to outperform by however the currency changes and you don't have to necessarily know how that will happen but as you think of it like with any company if you if you're investing in two companies here company a company b you invest in company a because you think it's going to have a better return than company b over time and that's that's a that's a you know it's a zero not zero sum but it's you know one just has to be better than the other if i said to you do the same thing, but you have to only invest in company A if it's going to be five percentage points per year better than company B. You may still do it because you think it's got that probability, but that's kind of, to some degree, the sort of approach you need to take. Now, how, how much undervalued the dollar is, how long it takes to go back, what sort of returns you're getting, it's extra variables and you can't know the answers to these. So we're not suggesting you can calculate them either way, just that's the mental framework in my mind. Doc, I don't know if you agree, but that's the mental framework I'd be using to work out how do we, you know, whether, whether or not to send money to the US to invest. Yeah, I think I largely agree with that. I'll add one point to that, which I think is an important consideration, is uh, you look at two companies, A and B, and let's say one of both of them you think is 20% undervalued, um, and then of course it makes sense to pick the one which is, um, you know, when you're not losing to the exchange rate. However, mm-hmm. this is the big however, you have to look at the quality of the companies. If you get a significantly higher quality company mm-hmm. with you know, what uh, fortress-like balance sheet with something that everybody needs with, you know, with stuff that the world is not going to do without, I'm going to be picking the one that is going to exist, likely to exist with much higher probability than stuff that's not going to mm, exist. Mm. So I think that's, I think on the ASX, that you will have to consider. Mm. You, I would demand a higher discount on certain companies um, so that, that's my variable. So I think I think yeah, you right. have to consider the discount that you're offer you're being offered and mm. how you think relative to opportunity. Um, I think that's the consideration. I think it's again, it's there's no perfect answer for this. Mm. It's really hard. Um, but yeah, like I mean, you know, you could you could pick any company ABC and then compare it to another company ABC. They're thirty percent. You know, you think they're thirty percent discounted, but your fair value should also what you think is your fair value should also account for the quality. Um, mm. because I think, you know, I think in situations like this, quality does matter. Unless, I'll, I'll, I'll take one, uh, I'll add, add a caveat here. Unless mm. you're assuming that you're okay, you're okay to take slightly lower quality and you're okay to assume that a bunch of them are, you know, some of them are going to actually go broke. Mm. Uh, but then you have to design your portfolio in that way th- to think that, well, you know, some of them are not going to work out, but that's fine because on average I'm going to do okay. So I think, you know, I think this is where I think a mismatch of strategy can actually hurt um, what you're going to get in terms of returns. So yeah, yeah, I I think, you know, consider, you know, it's, uh, if, if investing was easy, then, you know, everybody would be making really good returns. It's not easy, <laughs> which is why. And, and that's, you know, there's no one. Uh, I say there are multiple ways to skin the cat. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, I'd, I'd said encourage, yeah. I, I encourage thinking along multiple axes. So think about fair value. Think about currency. Think about quality. Think about durability. Think about call options. Mm-hmm. Um, think about... Uh, longevity, think about, you know, and I, I call it the snap test, or actually David Gardner calls it the snap <laughs> test. Which company disappears, nobody cares. Which company disappears, everyone cares. So I think, you know, that's sort of the framework. And again, you know, to some extent, every company is in, is, is, is dispensable. Mm. Just like no human being is indispensable, everybody is dispensable. Mm. I think that's important. So I think I'd consider that into the, throw that into the framework. And then again, you can, you can there's no perfect answer to this. So um, buy the best, <laughs> best bargain on some formula. 
Yes, that, and that's exactly right. And so, you know, like we get that anytime we add more variables, to Doc's point, the thing about multiple axes, you know, you are adding you're adding complexity. You could potentially add returns, right? It's not a place we should necessarily avoid, but it's just the reality of that and thinking about how that works. Um, I, you know, I, I would... It's, it's really, really hard, right? I, I think to Doc's point, you know, when I say a company A versus company B, I'm not just saying pure share price, but the overall assessment of quality, price, value, all the things that go into choosing an investment option and putting them side by side and saying, which one do I want to buy? Um, effectively, you just need to think about the starting point of... A, an investment overseas is just a simply different level um, given you've got a currency change. Now, the currency could fall to 40 cents before it goes back to 75. It may never go back to 75 in our lifetimes. You know, it could go to 30, it could go back to a dollar 10. Never got to a dollar 10 not long ago. Um, you, you know, it's a really, really, really difficult, difficult thing to try and to try and work out. Um, I have no easy answers. Doc has no easy answers. Um, the prob- the only problem is you just have to you, you have to have a view or, or, or choose not to take a view, but in either way, just understand the potential ramifications of an investment in, in, in that way. All right, mate, let's let's take the second part of that or the a slightly different part. Uh, we had a question from someone who asked us to call him Mr. S. Very uh, very spy, very James Bond. Um, Hi, Doc and Captain. Thanks for your service to newbie investors like me. I had a relatively simple question. What does currency gain mean when share price goes up or down? And how does one hedge against losses in this? Stay safe and ask your wish listeners to wash their hands. Uh, I like that. So, guys, wash your hands. Or as David Gardner said the other day on his podcast, wash your damn hands, which I liked. He doesn't, he doesn't swear. He's, a, he's very, very clean spoken. So he made an exception to say, wash your damn hands. And I can only echo that. And for Doc Will as well. Um, so we've talked about currency gain, mate. Um, the reality is that any, just to be, just to kind of underline that in hopefully one sentence, um, if you buy a, a any asset, including shares that are denominated primarily in overseas currency, UK pounds, uh, euros, US dollars, then converting that back to Australian dollars means you have to convert it back at the prevailing price when you do it. If that price is higher or lower than the price you sent the money across at, you're going to wear the loss or make a gain. How does one hedge against losses in this, Doc? Is it possible? Is it advisable? How would you do it? How do you how do you think about if you do hedging when it comes to investing in non AUD assets? Oh, that's a again a tough one. <laughs> you know, like you know, so for some tough questions, my solutions I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, I actually largely have ignored. Although I'm looking at the Australian dollar right now, and it's like it's falling like as if it's a stone. Uh, the Australian dollar to the USD, according to the Fin, is right now at fifty six point eight six cents. Um, yeah, which means my U.S. holdings right now, I look gold. So, I mean, I just here's, here's the, the interesting thing um, with, um, yeah, so I actually don't think about it that way. The, the other way, I, yeah, I'd actually, you know, you could buy hedged instruments, but I, I find you could buy mm. ETFs that hedge against the dollar. Mm. Uh, but again, you know, you're basically paying up for the hedging, so, you know, it's going to show yeah. up in your re- return. The way I think about uh, the currency, to some extent, is the same thing I think about, you know, dollar cost averaging. So basically, I'm buying. Someday I'm going to buy low. Someday I'm going to buy high. And as long as I'm not forced to sell at any particular point in time, mm. um, I just think about the investment case. So I really don't consider the dollar that much although yes when mm. i you know if, if i see the conversion happening it kind of hurts but, um, <laughs> yeah um yeah so my, my my thesis really is that it's like it's dollar cost averaging right now you're gonna get bad bad ones but there might be a time when you actually get a good um good um mm. outcome as well right i mean so yeah so i mean unless you're unless your hand is forced that you have to liquidate at the wrong time um 
there might be that it probably doesn't matter or maybe you make up for it in the returns or, or maybe you don't I, yeah. I don't again have an answer for that one thing I did mention when we asked the last question Doc answered the last question was um, the longer your time horizon the less currency needs to matter because as I said if, it's, if it was 25% undervalued in theory you got 5 years that's 5% a year if it's 25% undervalued you got 25 years that's 1% a year right and so the, the I mean it compounds slightly differently but just for the sake of the exercise let's use the simple maths um, you know the simple reality there is the longer you have your money overseas there's less you need to worry about if I'm and, and I probably should have my own advice. If I'm going to be invested overseas for the next 25 years, I probably need to worry less about the currency than I am, in, in all honesty, because as long as I can find a better idea. Now, if I can find a better idea here than overseas, by the way, if I like Woolies better than Walmart, then the currency is irrelevant. I wouldn't bother because I'm, I'm, Doc said this, I think two weeks ago, maybe last week, invest agnostically for current for uh, for uh, location, right? Like you, you want to buy the best stocks you can. If that happens to be Woolworths, great. If it happens to be Walmart, great. As long as you're buying at the right price. So when I say stocks, I mean the value included, not just not just purely businesses. But you know, if the best investment idea is Australian, then buy it. If the best investment idea is US, buy it after you consider the currency. But the longer you own it for, the less that needs to matter. In terms of uh, hedging, I completely agree. You are buying volatility protection. You're buying insurance that comes with a cost. Doesn't it mean it's cost not worth paying, but at some level, someone else is making money off you, right? You're kind of paying for that privilege. That being said, I have been looking relatively recently, in like two days ago, at a US uh, hedged instrument, which I might buy at low dollar prices because if I think the dollar will go back to the average over time, I might be prepared to pay for that insurance as part of my investing because I want the US exposure and I want to hedge off the dollar. And if I can get that, at a, I haven't looked yet at the price. I'll, I'll Maybe we'll do this next week or the week after if I decide that it's worth talking about it, maybe investing, we might talk to our, our listeners about it um, if it makes sense. Generally speaking, there's no free lunch, right? If someone's giving you, if someone's giving you uh, currency protection, then you're paying them for that protection. And they're not going to do it unless either they disagree with you or they want to simply take your money and do something you could do yourself otherwise. So if I'm going to pay them the 25% difference in insurance premiums rather than the 25% you know, percent, uh, value I get in terms of the actual hedging problem or the, the currency change, um, then I'm simply just changing who I'm paying, right? Which makes no sense at all. So there are some options. I could imagine a scenario where if the insurance was available cheaply enough, I might buy a hedge product when the dollar is lower than I think it should be and then sell it when it gets back to fair value and then go and hedge from there simply because it just simply doesn't matter as much anymore. So that's something I might do. There's tax implications and a whole lot of stuff. So I haven't thought that through all the way yet. I haven't looked at the instruments that are available. If we do, we'll let our listeners know, mate. How's that sound? Is that fair? That sounds fair. Beautiful. I think we've got time for one more question. Question from Sean. Hey, guys, love the show. I'm only investing in one Australian company, Afterpay. I'm new to investing six months in. So that being said, I was up 15% in total. Now I'm down 30. Looking forward, do you think Afterpay is a long-term winner? Thanks, guys, and full on. Now, I'm going to have first go at this, Doc, just to set the scene. I'll let you pick it up because you know Afterpay much better than I do. Um, Sean, I'm going to say, mate, I don't love the fact you only have one company, <laughs> honestly. If you're saying one Australian company because the rest of them are overseas, that's okay. Mate, there is absolutely no excuse for anybody to own only one company. Uh, the first company you buy, sure. If you're going to then buy a second one, absolutely. But please, you, your, your very experience is telling us that that roller coaster you've been on, I get it. If you're up a million percent, you, you know, then you're telling me I'm an idiot for telling you to buy more stocks. 
Um, and I'm not saying this because you're down subsequently to that. I'm just saying no one should have one stock. No one should have even five or ten stocks, please. Unless you're unless you're only investing in ETFs, please get to 15 companies as quick as you possibly can. Um, one will be a winner. Maybe it's the first one you buy. Maybe it's the third one you buy. Maybe it's the 15th one you buy. Some will be a losers. Again, it could be the first, third or 15th. Um, but please just be diversified because, you know, what, what worries me, Sean, is A, you lose money because that would suck. B, you lose money and then swear off investing because you just don't want to ever want to have that pain again. And that would suck even more because the long-term returns are worth it. You're better off getting a slightly lower return, but compounding that over a very, very long time making a heap of money. So that's my lead-in, Doc, my rant of sorts. I love you, Sean. I'm not having a go at you. I'm just saying, please help me help you. <laughs> Buy some more shares, please. Afterpay. Yeah, so... The interesting thing with Afterpay is um, Afterpay is basically caught in, in some ways in, in a perfect storm, right? So Afterpay as a business basically is lending um, money to consumers to buy things. It's making money off from retailers by basically paying them in advance, but it's basically borrowing that money from banks. So basically Afterpay borrows the money from the banks, gives it to the retailers, uh, takes a cut from the retailers, and then basically expects people to pay uh, the money in installments, right? And if they pay, and if, right. they, if they have a late, you know, if they're late to pay it, then basically charges a late mm. fee. So that's how it makes money. Now, for this, this is a great. This is a. It's a great way for um, you know people who want to budget and you know manage the cash flow to pay for things. But if we are in a world where essentially all non-essential services are shut down, and therefore you can't use afterpay at a shop because the shop mm. is closed. And maybe you can and you can use Afterpay online, but you know if um, un- unless you know if, if shops are shut and if people are not going to their jobs and mm. normal life is disrupted, people are not going to be thinking about buying you know discretionary items. So your discretionary sales are going to take a hit. So you know nobody's going to be wanting to buy that extra jeans or the new sunglasses that you probably don't need. Yep. Right. So I think there's a sentiment issue at um, in in play. Yeah. Then yeah, and, right, and okay. then of course there's the other issue that to keep the business rolling you have you know you have to have warehouse loans or you have to have loans from syndicate of banks that basically is being recycled forward. Right. So um, yeah, I think Afterpay has got plenty of cash on its balance sheet mm. to weather through the storm. But this is not a good storm for any company that's exposed to the retail side. Um, or consumer sentiment, right? It's basically just not a good time for them and therefore mm, they're going to take mm, a hit. Mm. Um, I would be concerned if this continues for a long time because yeah. if it continues, the longer it continues, the more strained, uh, you know, your your debt deals are, the, the more likely, the higher the likelihood of people not actually fulfilling the obligations of paying back on their debt. So there's a, you know, there's this, yeah, so there's the question of people who mm. have already taken uh, the jeans and have not paid for it, will they pay? Mm. There's the question of how many people more, and I'm using jeans as an example, but the question of how many more people are going to be wanting to buy that additional item called, you know, let's call it jeans or the slippers. Yeah, There's right. the question of having the, being able to service the debt that Afterpay would have with, you know, warehouse loans uh, that Afterpay would have to have then after, you know, that, that basically means Afterpay has to dip into its cash to run, contain. and then there's a final aspect, Afterpay is a growth business which has been adding retailers, adding consumers, uh, uptake, that all basically comes to a grinding kind of halt in an environment where everything is in lockdown. And one of the biggest, uh, so I think this is a way of market, you know, we, Australia is not yet in lockdown, but the U.S. is. Right. Um, and the U.S. and the U.K. were two big growth markets for 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 after mm. So in a mm. way, markets basically reacting 
to some of the ongoings and is sort of projecting that, you know, we will be in lockdown in Australia. So therefore the market yeah. is reacting. Could anybody have seen this? No. Um, if I had seen all of this and I'd have sold all my shares <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. sitting on cash and then, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, as I've said before, afterwards, a risky investment yeah. because of all these factors. And if, you know, and this is like the perfect storm <laughs> in that sense. Um, on the other side of this fence, mm. if, you know, if and when we get through this, um, after we should do well, um, it it needs to get to the other side of that fence. And yeah. I think that is the consideration that is coming into play right now. Um, so I do think their, their balance sheet looks okay right now. Um, but, you know, maybe the market is pricing in the fact that they might do a raise uh, to, you mm. know, follow the bolster, their balance sheet. Um, after has got some very big, solid, um, you know, VC style funders backing the company. So, you know, they will take their pound for flesh. But I think, you know, if they believe that the model is going to be successful, which I think the model is going to be successful, I think mm. there's a backstop in some sense. Mm. Uh, but at what price, I don't know. Um, if I hold after shares, I'll continue holding. Um, right. Again, I would say this is not really a back, the, it's not yet at the level where I think it's like, you know, back the truck type of moment. Okay. Um, so I would not back the truck. Um, I would not sell it. I would not be running to top up on it again, largely because you know this drama is still playing out. Nobody knows how long it plays out, mm. what goes on, um, and I'm calling it drama. I don't mean to you know make this uh, a flippant sort of observation. It's, it's a drama in the sense that you know there's a lot of panic, emotion. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, if you think about the absolute debt numbers, they are not mm. that large, mm. but there's this, there's this whole whole worldwide economy coming to a standstill so um it's it's a it's it's, it's a lot of different things that are playing out uh, so yeah that, that's my current view like absolute latest view in some sense mm-hmm. um uh, yeah and then again I, I just want to make the point here that this is being recorded for release on sunday <laughs> um, we are recording on thursday yeah. so between now and that time my view might change because you know um, because it's a recommendation in one of our services and we hold some shares I've always said that you know if you own Afterpay you should not own a lot of it okay. because it's very important to not own a lot of this company because okay. again it's, it's one of those companies that I think you want to own some but not a lot because if you own a lot um, it can be problematic especially in scenarios like this so just position sizing is important position sizing is really important I, I is, said that was going to be our last question I'm going to ask one more yeah because you know why because this, this particular question, I had to be reminded of twice that I'd forgotten to put it on the list of questions to ask. If I don't ask it now, I may well get some hate mail. So here's a quick one. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks, guys, for always answering my questions comprehensively and helping us all be better investors. You're welcome. One thing I've always been curious about in the stock market is why companies have any sort of interest in their stock price appreciating. Once stock is bought directly from the company at IPO, I always presume they didn't receive any additional capital from the day-to-day trades of their stock, Right. If the daily trading of stocks from shareholder to shareholder garners them nothing, what do they gain from a higher stock price except for a higher valuation? Thanks for your opinions and weekly wisdom on the pod. Full on. That's from Terminator. Thank you, Terminator. Good question. Lots of different possible answers. Let's try and keep it as brief as we can, mate, which you and I struggle with. That's why the podcast got for more than an hour I have so lots to say on this, but I'll oh, be you? brief. Okay. Yes, I'll okay. be brief. Right. So it is completely a myth that the stock price does not matter to the companies because, <laughs> and I'll, I'll say on the ASX. Some companies. Well, I'll say on the ASX, <laughs> a lot of companies basically treat the stock market as a money printing machine. <laughs> and and the reason I say this is is because the companies are, con- a lot of companies, especially growth companies, are doing capital raises. Right. When they do capital raises, they basically come back to the market, say, give me more money. Uh, there's second, you know, that's basically second replacement. This is not important for companies that, 
you know, like it's not important for something like Woolies that have got a, you know, a steady, mm. stable business, but mm. it is absolutely important for most of them. They do acquisitions, they do um, their growth, they come back and sometimes they even take money from us and say, yep. we're going to pay back the same money to you in dividends. It happens. It is very, so therefore the share price matters, not, you know, it, it, it to the companies. Yep. Um, absolutely. So, you know, as I said, the SX is actually true worldwide uh, for, for companies, even, even where there is no direct placement to shareholders, where the placement is made directly to so-called sophisticated investors, the yep. share price again matters, yep. right? It is only for those companies that do not need to raise capital and are never going to be using mm. their share price Correct. to acquire another company. Yep. Does the share price not matter? So if you're not going to raise capital, use your shares as an acquisition tool, it has no impact on the business. But to the extent you want to go and raise more, I mean, you can raise capital at any, at any share price in theory, but obviously the more money you, the more higher your share price, the fewer shares you need to issue to raise the amount of money you want. If you've got a, if you want to raise $10 million, you've got to issue a million shares at 10 bucks each or 2 million shares at $5 each. And obviously the more shares you issue, the more diluted your current shareholders are. So you kind of do care, right, about, about that from that perspective. Is that, is that kind of that point? Yeah, that's that's the point. So basically, yeah, the higher the share price, less dilutive it is. Um, yeah. So I, I I mean, yeah, pretty much every company except the very few that don't ever need to use their <laughs> share price because they're just you know cash generating machines. Those yep. companies basically don't really care about their share price in the interim. In fact, they might take a, if they're doing you know buybacks and things like that, they might actually love a lower share price because they could just buy back more because that then <laughs> inflates the earnings per share. So there's a lot of share price actually matters to companies in various different ways. Um, yeah, but you know it, it is it's a common misconception in that sense that the that the share price actually does not matter because it matters because a lot of companies actually use it as a currency. Yeah, to the extent you're going to raise capital. Two other reasons why you would care. Uh, the first, and this is the behavioral part, the first is straight out ego, right? So there is very few CEOs who get to that position absent ego. Um, whether you founded a company and you want to show how big and great you are, or whether you uh, took over a company and you want to show how much value you can create, in air quotes, for shareholders, that's real, by the way. I mean, to some degree... Yeah, if you're doing your job on behalf of shareholders, you want to maximize value. You want the market to recognize that value. That's all very reasonable, very rational, right? Like if you're running, um, you know, Scott and Doc's sock company, Incorporated, uh, and and you double your sales and you double your profits, you want the, the you want the shareholders to value to, to get value from that by the share price going up by you know, about double, lots of different things. But you know what I mean. Um, so you know that that it does matter. It's a it's a sign that you're doing the, your job and your job is being done, and you're looking after the interests of shareholders. So at a very at a very you know um, uh, you know uh, fiduciary kind of perspective, you you are responsible for increasing the wealth of the shareholders that own your stock. So you should care over time that your success is reflected in your share price. Um, so that that's the second. The third, actually I said to this, the third. So first is the ego. Second is that there's actually genuine value created. The third is um, career risk. <laughs> so if you think about who your employees are, if you're a company CEO, who do you work for? Now you report to the directors, the directors are there on behalf of the shareholders. Ordinarily that's you and me and we kind of don't care too much day to day where the share price fluctuates as long as they're building long-term value. But you know who does? Fund managers who have three and six month time horizons. If you're a fund manager and you say, I'm buying shares in Macquarie Bank because I think they're going to be $150 by Christmas and they're $98 by Christmas, you're going to bang on the CEO's door and say, what the hell are you doing? I want a higher share price. I've got a, I've got a responsibility here. I've told people the share price will be higher or I've got fund uh, unit holders who invested in me, who want a return. I want you to get the share price up so my fund is worth more. The reality is we all work for somebody and for a CEO, while they're, while they're the top of the, the management pile, they are the first port of call for an investor. In fact, some CEOs have said, I've heard 
up to two thirds or three quarters of their time is spent talking to investors who just want to see a higher share price because that's what they want. Um, I think that's in the short term a really damaging thing that leads to earnings maintenance and guidance that's stupid and um, you know trying to hit numbers that aren't reasonable because you promised it or because someone wants it. And so the short-term destructive behavior can actually really hurt long-term performance, but that's another reason why they do it. So uh, lots of reasons why they do, very few reasons why they should in a perfect world if shells would leave them the hell alone and uh, if they didn't need to raise money, as Doc's already said, and if they keep their egos in check, all you should, they should be doing is focusing on growing the value of the underlying value of the business and over time, the stock price will follow. We all believe that. Different timeframes, different styles, approaches. But over time, if you create enough value, the share price will follow. That's all they should be focused on. In fact, we do them a disservice every time we ask them to do something else, um, with the exception of, of the, the capital raising, as Doc's rightly pointed out. How'd it go, mate? I think you went well. Thank you. That's kind of you to say. Plus, you want to say that because you want to get rid of the podcast. All right, we're done. Uh, so before we go, though, don't forget, you can join Doc and his colleague, our colleague, Kevin, running Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. You can join their service by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. They are looking for high return with a little bit more risk, the sort of companies that Doc talks about a lot, the ones he's expecting to be the winners of tomorrow, or more importantly, of three and five years' time into the future, the businesses that are really, really great opportunities. Some will do well, some will do not so well. Overall, we expect the EO, I certainly expect the EO scorecard to do fantastically because these are great stock pickers doing a great job finding the winners of tomorrow using some of the successful strategies that our colleagues have used, that Doc has learned from them. He's come up with himself and with Kevin, of course, to find some of the, the smaller, riskier companies that have really, really big, kind of, you know, big opportunities, big runways, big um Ranges of outcomes, and that's a really good way to invest in Doc and the team do it really well. So fool.com.au EO podcast, you can get a special offer just for podcast listeners by going to that link. Mate, that's it. That is it. We'll go back and enjoy our Sundays, but before we do, we're going to do my usual spiel because we want you to subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast. Do it through iTunes or do it through your favorite Android podcast app. That way you won't miss an episode. When they land, they'll be uploaded automatically to your software as long as you've ticked the right box. And you can listen to us and you know when it's there, which is exciting because you don't want to miss some of our stuff, do you, Doc? People don't want to miss that. This is the good stuff. Agreed. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends who couldn't do with a little bit more foolishness in their lives. And of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of that foolishness going to straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money, our special mailbag edition. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.